Hey, I'm Pastor Colin from Aletheia Bible Fellowship. This week we are diving into sermons on biblical friendship within the body and how we can be in solidarity in those friendships in a way that is unlike the world. So if you want to check that out about the nature of friendship and what makes it different between believers and non-believers, then watch this sermon and share it with the friends that you think would like it and find it useful. Yeah, so we're moving on to friendship in specific. In friendship, as you're looking at your relationships, um, you've decided to make a distinction, right? You've decided that something is, one particular relationship is more valuable or you've chosen to treat it as more valuable than the other ones. So how do you decide that something is valuable in your life versus being common or just, you know, generic, interchangeable? Is it because it's particularly useful, you know, because of its function or its literal monetary value? Or is it because of its sentimental value, objects and possessions, they have sentimental value. It reminds you of good things or has other emotional benefits, like peace, for example. Some things just bring us calm, you know, like your favorite baby blanket or whatever. <clears throat> reminds you of good things, in theory. Because of, maybe you find something value because of its aesthetic value, its intrinsic God-made beauty, just what you appreciated about the appearance. Or simply because of supply and demand, just the, the availability of it and the rarity of it just makes it valuable. Even friendship has all these components. You know, is a friend useful? We have lots of friends that, that have skills or... Um, talents or just relationally even, they add something to your relationship and so they're very useful and functional in that way. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We're supposed to be useful to each other. If, it, if it's uh, sentimental value, you know, certain friends make you a better person, right? They bring you, um, they bring you a sense of peace. You can be safe and at rest when you're with certain friends. Or maybe your friends are because of aesthetic value, like in middle school, you know, because they're just beautiful people and you want to be like that. That was not my middle school experience, tell you that. <clears throat> or simply because of supply and demand. Sometimes good friends are hard to find, and so they're real valuable. But there's another dimension that I want to bring to the table this month. Because <clears throat> friendships are with people, and people are image bearers of our holy and righteous God. There's at least, at least one more layer because of this, and that is a moral value given by the Creator Himself. It's a source of truth and encouragement in how we value friendships. It's a source of living truth and encouragement. It's just a book has truth, right? Any author can write a book and, and transmit ideas, and there's some truth in there. But with a friend, there's a value of living truth that can interact and play off and encourage and grow. A book can't grow with you, right? You can grow with the book maybe a little bit, but only two people, two image bearers of God, can grow with one another in truth, in morality, in following Christ. Only a relationship can satisfy our craving 
for that type of moral growth and significance. Because our Creator has relationship in His spiritual DNA, uh, we do too, after His likeness. However, since God is holy and righteous, there's a morality that's inseparably tied to that relationship and our relationships. So as we discuss this month, I want you to think about and explore what makes a friendship so valuable in your life, in your mind, as you're processing things. What makes friendship so valuable and what keeps those invaluable relationships strong amongst us? So that's what we're working on this year and this month in specific. Meditating on that is in the body. How do we create this sense of solidarity and a growing sense of solidarity in our friendships here? Friendship is um, it's partially special because there are different grades of friendship. Right? Often they're called circles of friendship or something like that. There's a lot of different friendship models or theories or whatever out there. But all of them basically have the same story. You start with a couple of very close friends, right, that are your besties or whatever. They're close to you. And then maybe like five really great friends, 15 good friends, 50 like plain old friends that are just, you know, better than your average stranger. And then a whole bunch of acquaintances and work friends. And as you go down that, that gradient, uh, you have an increasing number of friends in each category, right? And a decreasing amount of intimacy in each one of those categories. So where do we draw the line in defining friendship? It's kind of just a, a sloppy term at best, you know? It's just sloppy. So where do we draw the line? What is an actual friend? It's kind of this ongoing conversation in our culture is, you know, nobody uses the word acquaintance. Oh, that's my acquaintance over there. Nobody says that. We should. We should because distinctions are good and, and we need to be able to like process these things. But the reality of it is there are dividing lines. And so we should be considering how we want to view those things and then allow that to inform our lives. Proverbs 12.26 says, The godly are cautious in friendship. The wicked lead them astray. This is advice to the perspective of the friend seeker, right? That's what this is, is advice um, for this person. The godly are cautious in friendship, the wicked lead them astray. So, to put that a different way, because the wicked lead them astray, the godly are cautious in friendship. The godly are cautious in getting into friendships, cautious with their friendships, cautious where they draw the line of what a friend is, what a friend is called, and how safe we are with them, how um, engaged we are with them, how vulnerable we are with them. <clears throat> that is warranted advice. And it's all throughout Proverbs, but that's just a good sample of, of what that looks like. And it's through, like Solomon writes about it all the time, as he's thinking about his son and the advice that he wants to give to him for how to grow up and be successful, be wise, be godly, be all these things. So, what do these circles of friends relate and uh, bond this friendship over? You know, what do, they, what do they relate on and what do they bond over? Acquaintances and work friends typically bond over being at the same place at the same time, right? Is that 
most of your friendships and be thinking about these things, you know, as I'm going through my life, what are my best friends and where am I at <laughs> on this kind of scale? How mature have I grown my relationships? Being at the same place at the same time, acquaintances and work friends, right? Shared experience or like one moral theory I saw um, pointed out, which I thought was really interesting. They, they called it like those who are paid to help you. You know, those who benefit from helping you in some way, shape, or form. Don't be fooled. Like, people may seem like you're really good friends at work and stuff like that. But be wise and distinguish, why is that person actually your friend? And it may not be a conscious thing, oh, I can get all I can from this person and I'm being paid and so I'm like, whatever. But what level of real investment is there? As believers, with a high standard... We cannot be fooled by those things, and we should seek to grow past those things, to, to, to remount a foundation, right, underneath something that is a suck foundation, if we want to invest in a person. <clears throat> okay, so actual friends, like what I'm going to draw a line of borderline friendship here. Actual friends are bonded more by choice and priority, right? This is like the 50 or something in this category that most people throw in there. Those people set aside time to enjoy something together, you know, maybe a shared activity or some real conversation. They don't have to be, they're not just happen to be at the gym at the same time. They don't just happen to be working together because their, you know, boss said yes to both of them or whatever. But people that actually set aside time to enjoy something together is my colloquial definition of that. Uh, I place the bio family at this next level of friendship because it's, it's kind of just a little bit over that, at the root of it, you know? We usually have times set aside and hopefully enjoy one another with some real conversation. You know, some people really hate holidays and whatever, but you do have to intentfully set aside time for your biological family. You don't have to go to Christmas. Plenty of people don't. You know, you don't have to go to Easter. You don't have to go to Thanksgiving. You don't have to go to Super Bowl Sunday with your family or whatever. So it's like you are intentfully setting aside conversation. This is a level of friendship. And there's some conflict and some resolution, a long-term relationship, right? And that's facilitated, yes, by your God-given relation to that person. And as believers, we, we are called and we should respect that and do right by that. But ultimately, the bond is based on blood. And that's good. We've been put with those people by God, but this biological friendship, that can mature, like I was just talking about, into a next level of friendship. You know? So we have to be thinking about even those people in our family, what level of friendship do we have with them? Are we good with that? Is that doing right by that relationship? Which are your good friends? <clears throat> um... Yeah, you can, you can mature that relationship into the next level of relationship, which is your good friends and great friends. You know, those group of like 15 or so and then like five or so or whatever. Being founded in the body of Christ here, because we have different standards in the world, being founded on your relationship with Christ instead of happenstance at work, instead of um, similar interest in how you play and have fun, instead of biological association. It's a foundation built on the same worldview. Increasing levels of vulnerability and support, you know, characterize this type of thing. A palatable investment 
in one another, like something that you can feel and taste and touch. You don't have to scratch your head and think, you know, when's the last time I really invested in this person or whatever. It's like something that is regular, not simply a developed social contract, but actually putting others ahead of yourself, right? Following these biblical mandates where it's like you've thought about your relationship, you've made sacrifices for this relationship, serving after the example of Christ one another, you know, washing each other's feet, that kind of metaphorical type thing, except for in real life action. <clears throat> and forgiveness and acceptance in order to maintain that relationship and keep growing it, actively nurturing it to maturity and maintaining it. And then lastly, you know, we have our closest friends. And those, that's where your like spouse would fall under that category, hopefully. And our mentors, the people we collaborate with in service to Christ, day in and day out. Sharing ideas with, how can I better glorify God? You know, what can we do in this? What can we do in that? Like people that you're legitimately engaged with on a lot, on all of those levels of your personal being. So yeah, just thinking about these categories, your good friends especially, and then those people that you think would be proper, would be good, um, that need investment. You know, where are we at in all these relationships as we're sort of taking a baseline of our friendship life here at ABF? This, um, this last position, not everybody can be in that position, right? We're finite people. We can only have so many best friends or, or whatever. <clears throat> but these people, the closer we get to this level of friendship where there's like real collaboration going on, this is a valuable position. These are positions where your friends can see the inner you at your closest magnification, you know, and the closest comparison to how God sees you, right? Because these people, I want to, this is going to be a, a recurring theme here, but these people, they are Christians. They're people that understand God's perspective because this is a valuable position for somebody to be able to see the inner you, to see you, hopefully, how God sees you and can let you know that before it's judgment day, right? And God says, hey, what were you doing with your life? We want to have friends that are able to come alongside us and say, hey, this doesn't seem good. You know, maybe we should go in this direction. How can I help you in that? Like sharing each other's burdens and, and giving us wise counsel and all of those things. This is not a position for them, for their benefit, because they can have influence on you or whatever, but it's for you, because they can help you and support you and guide you. So yeah, do our friends at those levels, is that where they're at? You know, or is it because they want to feel good about themselves? And obviously, in all these things, we should be thinking about who we are as a friend too, right? We'll be thinking about that as we progress through the month more. But you can start chewing on it now. We want to see where we're at with all these friends. Are they people that are going to be able to warn us before sin takes hold in our life? Before we get too deep into something? Before we go off in a direction that we're going to regret in a week or a month or 
two years or something. So you should see a pattern here. The closer a friend is to you, the closer that friend should be to God as a believer, as talking about the solidarity of the body of Christ in our friendships with one another. <clears throat> Jesus had his circles too, right? In Luke 10, 1, he appointed 70 disciples to join in the ministry. And he was just talking about, you know, his disciples, and then he's like, and I appointed 70 others to, uh, to go out and do this ministry. They were engaged in the work for his father, right? And they had a continuing relationship. They were also disciples. Then he had his 12 apostles, his good friends in the ministry. Wasn't super, they weren't all his best friends. There's 12 of them, 13, depending on how you look at it. And these people went with him in and out, you know, lived daily life with him for several years. They were his good friends in the ministry, um, but they were also distinct from his inner circle of James and John and Peter, who were Jesus' selected best friends, those ones that he invested in the most. And they, in turn, also were the ones that we see investing back in Christ, or at least trying. Jesus invested in them by sharing a lot of significant and special moments. Right, the good and the bad even. The transfiguration on the mountain, he brought them, and they got to see that intense side of, of Christ um, coming into his spiritual glory in that. Something that very few people got to witness. They directly witnessed Jesus resurrecting people. They had the opportunity to pray with him before his crucifixion. He brought them in for his support, when he needed real support, when the Son of God, of all people, needed actual support from other humans. Like, those were the people that he brought in. Who's our inner circle? <clears throat> they also had opportunities, like I just implied, to lend counsel or input to him. In Luke 9, they wanted to blow up a Samaritan village uh, because that Samaritan village didn't want to accept Jesus. Bad counsel. Jesus rebuked them for it. But they were there for him. They were like, Jesus, forget those guys. You want us to command fire down from heaven? Let's get them. You know, this is like, I don't know, I've never seen it, but the, uh, I don't know, whatever. What's that motorcycle show that everybody watched a long time ago? Yeah, Sons of Anarchy. It's like Sons of Anarchy apostle status or whatever. Not, not the way Christ wanted to do things. That was not on target, you know? But they were there for him in that. Jesus had more investing to do, more teaching. More teaching to do with these guys. He rebuked them for that. Um, in Matthew 16... Um, about verse 16. Jesus asked Peter, essentially if he knows Jesus, Jesus asked Peter if he know, knew him, essentially better than everybody else. He gave him an opportunity. He said, Peter, you know, who does everybody else say that I am? Oh, they think you're, you know, a prophet. They think maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're Jeremiah, maybe you're whoever. 
And Jesus was like, Peter, who do you say that I am? Do you know me? And Peter was like, yeah, I know you. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus was like, yes. Peter, you are blessed, he said in verse 17. Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Peter's close relationship with Jesus and really knowing the inner him was not due to them spending three years together. It was due to Peter's relationship with God, the Father that they have in common. That's what Christ reveals to us is the key component in Peter really knowing who Jesus was. Jesus taught about a lot of things to a lot of people constantly. Nobody really knew him. Nobody really knew the inner him, what he was about, what he was there for. But Peter did, because God revealed it to him. Did Jesus pick any disciples that weren't from God's people? No. Because those closest to us should be working for God. Now the point is that our friendship should be seen in this lens more than our compatibility in personality, right? People want to be friends with those that are easy to be friends with. People want to be friends with those that are fun to be friends with. That value isn't present in Scripture. Quite to the contrary, in fact, God puts us with different people to serve better. The Lord knows his apostles were a varied bunch of hooligans. But they all had their different sides of things. You know, whether they were a fisherman or a tax collector or a zealot. You know, a bunch of average Joes with different lenses on things. A Pharisee, you know, like all sorts of different people. How much of our friendships are seen through God's eyes as we're taking inventory? How much of them are seen through God's eyes? What God values in a good friend for us? Or how about our potential friendships? Those people that we see that need somebody, right? Somebody that needs a friend. How do we see them as what God would consider for us a good potential friend to take on, to help raise up in Christ, to be a peer? To know the inner you. To be a intimate partner in service. How do we see those things right now? Do we judge the character of our friendships through their usefulness for God's glory? Or by something else? If we're to look at friendships to serve, that serve a holy God, then that friendship must also be holy. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be partner with an unbeliever? 
That's a harsh scripture, and it's far from the only example of that, right? But stop. Let's compare believer with unbeliever here. I don't know that this is necessarily going to make things more palatable, but it's, it's clear. Uh, the Greek is pisto. It's for believer. It's trustworthy, faithful, believing. P-I-S-T-O. Versus unbeliever. Apisto. Essentially, you know, the A is not like whatever, sexual, asexual, right? Like two completely different styles of reproduction if you're studying like worms versus crickets or something or <clears throat> whatever. So you have trustworthy, faithful, believing, and then not all of those things in regard to Christ, in regard to God. They are mutually exclusive terms. They're mutually exclusive. They're not compatible with each other. It's like you can't, you can't say that, well, I can trust this person in areas, you know, A, B, and D, but not C, and then actually talk to somebody and be like, but I trust this person. It's like it doesn't really work like that, right? That's what we see in terms of how this, these things are defined here. Continuing at verse 16, Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, <clears throat> And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you. And I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's an Old Testament quote, right? And Israel had a specific covenant with God that was a judgment covenant, even, where they had to go into the promised land God had issued a judgment on these people. They were to be out. They were to, to eradicate those people and take the land that God had given them. And so we're looking at this from a different context here in terms of that passage and talking about filthy things and, and all of this stuff. <clears throat> but Paul is using it in a very real sense that's relevant to us because we are now God's temple. God has brought grace to the world. He's offered grace to the whole world. But there's still a distinction. There's still pistos and apistos. Believer and unbeliever. And there's still those things. It's not in the same way, but it is the same concept in a different um, matter of submission. The issue is that unbelievers are not set apart for God. Jesus Christ has come and laid on the altar of the world stage to purify everybody, to offer forgiveness to the world. But if that sacrifice is rejected, there is no purification. There is no atonement. There is no holiness to be had. We here are not holy because of anything that we did, right? We are holy 
because we've accepted the forgiveness of God, of Christ's blood, and we live in submission to him through his spirit among us. This is the page that we have to be on for those that are partnering with us in these ministries as our close friends informing who we are to become as an inner person. So as we look at our friends, how are we processing that? And let's continue, you know? If we are looking at people from the workplace or from, from wherever and we're trying to figure out Um, how to approach that friendship for the time being at least then we have to process in this way you know are they still unclean before our righteous God that's one of the things that A we should figure out because if we want a real friendship with somebody what's more important than figuring out where they are spiritually right we've all been there Most of us, anyway. Most of us didn't grow up in the church, like a ton of us. And so we've all been there. But do we know where our coworkers are at? Do we know where our acquaintances are at in regard to those things? Have we had the guts to have that conversation with somebody, even though there's the little company policy that says don't have the religious conversation? You know? Or somebody that you've had 20 years of history with, and you've just never, it's just never really come up. You know? Take inventory of these relationships, of these friendships. Figure out where they are and where they need to go. That's what we're called to do. Because God wants our close friendships to be holy, to be able to serve with one another to God. If not, Those friendships are difficult. It's difficult to put on the same level in our heart. Something that's unholy, something that's unprepared, right? Our holy, jealous God will not have that kind of union in his family. Like, he doesn't want that. We can make things better. We can work towards something better. We should be in prayer about those things being made holy. We are to come out of the world. That scripture says, don't touch what's unclean. Don't touch means don't fasten to, don't adhere to, don't... It's interesting, one of the definitions of that is fasten fire to a thing, like kindle a fire. It's the same word as in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Not to fasten to, not to adhere to a woman in that way. That's a sexual passage, obviously. It's a touch of intimacy. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about good friends, is an intimate connection. It's used several times, that same word, touch, to fasten to, adhere to, Whatever. It's used several times in describing the woman who touched Jesus against his will or around his, without his will. As Jesus is walking through the crowd, the woman comes and touches him and drew healing power from him by her faith. God the Father said, this person 
had an intimate touch with my son. And he let the power flow to her. It was a unique connection. John 5, 1 John 5, 18 through 19, we see the opposite touch. The opposite intimate touch. 18 and 19 say, We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. For God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we are children of God, and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And intriguingly, that's the exact picture we get in James 3 when he says, in the same way, 3 verse 5, in the same way the tongue is a small thing that produces grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It's a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by what? By hell itself. It's this picture, this overlapping picture of fire and touch. Specifically, it's this intimacy, right? And it can draw us toward good or it can draw us toward evil. James 4.4 4, says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that, his, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. These are, I don't know, these are harsh messages. If I'm being honest, I'm kind of uncomfortable with how much I don't like it. But yeah, we have to be cautious when we want to be friends with people who have not submitted themselves to Christ. This is an intimate touch. And it's good. It's with our created nature. We're created to want those things. We're created to thrive off of those things. But we have to be careful. And we have to take inventory of where our relationships are at. This isn't, these passages aren't to say, right, that we should be lowering our unbelieving friends in our sight. That we should be looking down on these people because they haven't figured out their relationship with God yet. Christ certainly didn't do that. He was known eternally for doing the opposite of that. He taught us to love our enemies. And he had a bad rap amongst the leaders, the spiritual leaders, for spending time with those who were known sinners. The reality is that this is a fallen world, and people are no exception to it. We're the prime example of it. And as the body of Christ, we fight it too. But this is to say that our standards for friendship in the body of Christ should be made holy and raised up for the glory of God. We're pushing for solidarity here. A lot of things that I've, that I've seen in regard to friendship, because, you know, Friendship Month, and so I'm like listening to YouTube like sermons about this, that, and the other thing. A lot of a lot of preaching on friendship is don't become friends 
with this person. Don't become friends with that person. Don't become friends with this person. Maybe that's true on a practical level, but God calls us to certain people, right? To bridge that, to offer a hand of grace in the name of Christ. We don't need to be afraid of people. We don't need to look down on people for those things. What we need to do is make sure that what is holy is kept holy. And think about where we're at in that process in our friendships. Because in the body of Christ, there's within the body of Christ, there is no option, like, there, there's no, I'm not going to be friends with this person, right? Because they're not good enough. They're a bad influence on me or whatever. Like, it's never going to be, at the very least, it's never going to be that simple. It's going to be, we need more support to encourage this person to be on the right path. You know, they need more friends, not less friends, right? They need more friends to be having that intimate touch on them so that they can be pulled in the correct direction to follow Christ and be a partner in the ministry and all of this. We're pushing for solidarity here, not to exclude people, but we want to grow this month and this year. You want to have unbelieving friends? Great. But you'd better make sure that your relationships with believers are holy, are set apart in intimacy and in teamwork for Christ. A non-believer may make a good friend. You know? To be honest, a couple of my best relationships or whatever in terms of uh, like synergy or chemistry or, and I'm not even talking about like girlfriends or whatever, but like dude to dude friendships, like great synergy, great love, great service to one another. Um, one of them was my old roommate for a couple years. We did great together. We were always like fighting to do the dishes. Like this is no joke, I'm dead serious. We would, we were almost, we were in a, like a light competition for who was going to buy the next meal, for who was going to like do the dishes. And it wasn't like an awkward thing. It was totally natural and it was, it was great. But he was not a believer and I was immature and I didn't get it. But in retrospect, like, because we had had conversations, like we went on like a five-day rafting trip together and we had lots of time for conversation about the intimate things. We were not on the same page. We were not, like we were just ultimately cordial. And it makes me sad, but I don't know if I would call us friends, even though we lived together for a couple of years, and I'd spent a decade with him before that. We weren't friends. Like, we did not have an understanding that went to this core that God wouldn't consider blessed. 
God did not bless that friendship. Even though it was great, we had an awesome time, we played so much rock band together, it was super rad. It was empty. It was empty. And it was not to the glory of God. And when I look back on that relationship, when I'm gone and sitting up with Jesus reviewing the TV monitor or whatever we're going to do, I don't think I'm going to get very many points for that relationship. I don't think he is either. I hope that that relationship, you know, in the future, like he's still processing it because it was a substantial impact. I don't know. What I know is that moving forward, I don't want to take for granted the holiness that God requires in all of our relationships, in our friendships, especially the ones that we're drawing closer and closer to us. I took that relationship for granted. I don't want you guys to do the same thing in your relationships. Don't think that a relationship is good and um, be satisfied with it without Christ in that relationship. Whether that's a coworker or a longtime friend or whoever, don't do it. It's not the truth. That doesn't mean that they're not substantial. That doesn't mean that that time isn't valuable, but it, mean, it means that it needs to be used and moved. You have to ask why. <clears throat> why does your unbelieving friend make a good friend? There might be something really awesome there is something really awesome there. I guarantee it, in fact. There's something that God made them to be that they are not quite doing yet. You can see it because they're created in the image of God and he has a plan for them. But it's not actualized yet. It hasn't been consecrated. It hasn't been baptized and made holy for God. Are you satisfied? with where that friendship is. I hope not, for your friend's sake. Now let's ask, what about our friendships with believers? Do they have a moral quality and the depth of holy relationship that they should? Amongst us here, do our friendships have that moral quality and depth of holiness that would be pleasing to God? Or do, they, do our friendships mostly stick to the common paths of value, of function, you know, of beauty, of fun, of emotional comfort and feeling good? Let's evaluate that and look at that this month because we should never be too comfortable in that position, whether that's with a believing friend or with an unbelieving friend. Because in either case, it's a dangerous place to be. Continuing from Peter's testimony <clears throat> that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, from Matthew 16, 
Verse 21 says, from then on, after Peter had made that confession, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. So Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Jesus calls Peter a dangerous trap. A friend? A trap for the Son of God? That's why we have scriptures like the proverb at the beginning, or this one, Proverbs 22, uh, 24 to 25. Don't make friends with a hot-tempered person. This is just one-dimensional, but don't make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. We have to be careful. And Jesus is crystal clear that this wisdom is from Satan. Because whoever our close friends are, normal conversation, they're going to advise us on things. So let's process, you know, what do our relationships look like right now? Who is giving input into our lives? Is it out of love for his friend? Is Peter's input out of love for his friend? Yeah. Yeah, it is. 100%. I'm sure he loved Jesus very, very much, and we see that all throughout the Gospels. But it's a short-sighted love here. A reasonable, even admirable piece of input. But it's short-sighted. Like, for today, you know, if one of us wanted to go, I don't know, to Afghanistan, or even to riots in downtown Portland, right? Because we're like, I feel called to go over here and minister to these people. I feel called to go into this situation and fight for peace. And your friend says, no, you shouldn't go. You'll be hurt or killed for sure. Like, don't do that. God knows that you don't deserve that. He has better things for you than that. It's well-meaning advice. But it could very well be evil advice. That's why it's important that our friends are our friends based on holiness, based on service to God. How many countless souls have been reached by people that had the guts and the faith to follow God into a situation where their friends were afraid of losing them? Countless people saved, physically and spiritually. How many have been saved by peacemakers? A ton. But how can a friend without God give us good direction in these important matters. We can love and support and minister also and enjoy these people. But make no mistake, an enemy of Christ is an enemy to us even if they don't comprehend that. And that's tough. But don't be sad about that. Let your sadness and compassion for that truth as we think about our relationships today let your sadness and compassion for that truth drive you toward ministering to those people and bringing them into the fold of the Good Shepherd 
where we can actually rest together, where we can actually work together. Let those opportunities have the light of day. If you love secular friends, don't confuse them. That's not loving. Give a clear image of the right and wrong paths. That is God's idea of a good friend to those people. That's allowing the scripture to mold our mind and our heart to what is right. So as we're thinking about the base level of friendship this month, that's what should govern our values and ideas too. What is God's idea of a good friend? As hard as that is, and we have to accept that. And we aren't doing anybody any favors when we pretend. And ultimately, when God brings people to him, the relationship is beautiful, it's holy, it's consecrated, and it's eternal. That is a friend. This is not a call to abandon all worldly friends and to stay away. This is not a call to plant a flag for a team amazing and to declare the others to be worthless or even just worth less. This is a call to recognize the vast difference. This is a call to amplify that difference. We're going to be exploring how we're going to amplify that difference this month. And to not let the differences between our friends in solidarity in Christ and our friends with unbelievers, to not let those differences start to get vague and mingle and merge until it's hard to tell the difference. Our apostas friends should feel loved when they hang with us. And they should also feel a slight but significant whole when they watch us interact with the love of Christ amongst us as brothers and sisters. They should be getting the sample size, you know? And God willing, this body can be a Costco, you know, with lots of samples given. God willing. Still substantial and nourishing, but at the end of the day, you want a full meal. Right? I want to end with a couple little narratives here. The first one is from the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 5 about the Philistine god Dagon. Verse 5, after the Philistines captured the Ark of God, so Israel was, fell out of favor with God, they were not keeping themselves holy, and God allowed them to be defeated, allowed his Ark to be captured by the Philistines. The Ark that held the presence of God. <clears throat> the Philistines captured it, and they took it, from the battleground at Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. They carried the Ark of God into the temple of Dagon and placed it beside an idol of Dagon. But when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him in his place again. But the next morning the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen face down before the Ark of the Lord again. This time his head and his hands were broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. This narrative 
Uh, as far as I can tell, they were not dishonoring the ark of God. They brought it in. They brought it into their temple. They didn't throw it in the, you know, out by the dumpster out back or whatever. They didn't like set Dagon on top of it or anything. They set them side by side. They're pagans. Maybe they were going to worship the ark of the God of our God also. But God didn't like that. God is a holy God. We cannot put him side by side with other gods, with other loyalties. He has to be holy and set apart. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? In the same way, in our bodies, in our heart, we have to set aside God as holy over and above all things. And that means when we have other friends that are unbelievers, we hold them in our heart, that we understand things as God understands them. Because when God looks at a person, He sees where they're coming from, what they intended on doing, what they succeeded in doing, what they failed in doing. He knew them since before they were formed. And He will know us long after. All these things relate, you know? And everything that we do has meaning. It's amazing the amount of metaphor and analogy in Scripture. Our God is a God of meaning. And when we don't take our friendships as holy, as opposed to other people, That's not giving God the respect that he commands us to give. We are a temple for God. God sees us as cohesive persons. So let me conclude with one last question and image to contemplate. Are you baptized? Are you sealed with the Holy Spirit? And then are you washed Do you see yourself as washed and anointed for service to God? Are you a consecrated utensil for worship? Is everything that you do an act of living sacrifice, laying things to the altar of God, worshiping God? Who do you do that with? Do you do that with other utensils that have not been consecrated, that have not been baptized and sealed and prepared for temple worship, for temple service, right? Like, would ancient Israel have taken the cups of their, of their um, temple inside where everything is holy, everything is consecrated, everything is anointed? Would they have taken the cups and then, you know, when somebody forgot the plate that the bread goes on or the little tongs that are used for the bread, will they just go into the silverware drawer and pull out a fork and throw it on there and be like, that's good, that'll do. That serves our functional value of things. No, 